up already for Matthew chapter 14. We're going to pick up in verse number 13. And I, I, I had a kind of a different break between the 8.30 and the 10.30 service last week. And so I'm not exactly sure where, we, uh, where I left off with you guys. But we're just going to finish. We're going to pick it up in 13. It's kind of a natural break um, for that. So Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse number 13. And it says, when Jesus heard it, what did Jesus hear? He had heard that John the Baptist had been beheaded. He had heard that King Herod was now interested and his attention was on Jesus. One of the things you notice as you follow this, or people who follow it closer than I do tell me this, that after this point, for a season, Jesus doesn't go anywhere in Israel that was under Herod the Tetrarch's uh, jurisdiction. You see him in the Galilee, in the upper region, and he travels and he kind of stays out of now for a little bit this area where Herod the Tetrarch was in charge of. And so Jesus heard it and it says, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. Now, Jesus gets this bad news about his cousin, John the Baptist, who was beheaded. And so as Jesus is dealing with grief, in this particular occasion, Jesus wanted to be alone and and just process And what's going to happen is, as Jesus desires to be alone, the crowd is going to see him leave from one side and and head towards the other. And they're going to begin to, to, to run around the Sea of Galilee. And by the time he lands on the other side, such a large crowd will have gathered that the Bible says it's 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. Did we talk about grief last week in this service? I think maybe briefly we did. But I'm going to highlight it because Jesus, it records for us twice in the New Testament that Jesus wept. So your Bible trivia for the day, the two times that Jesus wept, the first time was regarding what? Jerusalem. Very good. So Jesus was in Jerusalem and he was overlooking the city. Now we're going to Jerusalem when we as a church, FYI, we go every two years to Israel. So we went two years ago. And we're going, um, it's coming up in weeks, November 6th. This particular trip is closed and sold out. Um, But look on your calendars, mark your calendars. In the spring of 2020, we're going back. And usually there's about um, uh, 16 months beforehand that we'll plan the trip so that everybody can plan. Our trip, this this trip is about $4,500. The next trip that we're going to do to Israel, we're going to try to do it for $3,500. And it'll be almost identical trip. So we're using, uh, we've been with the same company for 30 years, um, Imagine Travel, and it looks like for the first time we are going to switch companies next trip. There's a new company that's out there that's selling trips to Israel, and they're like the Walmart of travel. I, they're like, I don't know how to explain it, they're, they, but you know, they, they just are a conglomerate, and, and they have the same exact trip for $1,000 less. So, you know, we, we've avoided this in the past and 10 years ago we took an economical trip and, you know, we saved a thousand dollars and it was so not worth it. We didn't stay in the nice hotels. We didn't have the best food and the thousand dollars that we saved compared to all the other trips to Israel that we've done, it wasn't worth it. So when one of the pastors told us, you know, he's doing the same exact trip we are for a thousand dollars less, we said, ah, yeah, no, he's not. We did that. And then it's just not the same. You don't stay in the same hotels. It's worth the extra thousand bucks, you know, and And then we started looking at his trip and our trip and we're like, he's doing the exact same trip we're doing for a thousand dollars less. How is he doing that? Enter gate one. 
So it's a, it's again. So anyways, long story short, we are going in 2020. It's going to be a, a less expensive trip and it's going to be ever bit as nice. Mark your calendar, start saving. One of the things we did while we were there is on the hill on the north side of Jerusalem. So as you go where the Temple Mount is, if you move out to the north of the city and just off this way a little bit is where Golgotha is, where Jesus hung on the cross. And then continue up the road a little bit north. There's a, a hill on the north side. So you're looking like right down the, the, the Kidron Valley. So you have the Mount of Olives, you have the Temple Mount this side, and you're looking south back at the city. And you can see the entire city of, and you're at one of the Hebrew universities that's there, sits up on this hill. Right next to there is where the LDS University is. They have the most beautiful location, one of them in Israel, as far as views goes in the whole city. But one of the things that you notice when you're in Israel and you're in this particular place looking back to the south and overseeing all of the city of Jerusalem is that there's factions in the city. And you'll see like the Lutheran quarter. You'll see where the, the Jewish quarter, the Christian quarter, all along the, the, the um, Mount of Olives on the um, west side is all the Muslim quarter. And you can tell where all the Muslims are. And it's a Muslim area. And then you'll see the Essenes and you'll see the, the, the Catholics. And you'll see in every different type of church and every different type of denomination in the world is represented in your view somewhere in the city of Jerusalem as you overlook the old city and the Temple Mount area and around there. And, and everybody, I mean, you name it, somebody has some piece of something there that's represented there in Jerusalem of different religions and, and somehow Jerusalem brings them all to one place. But what happened is Jesus looked over the city of Jerusalem and Jesus wept. Why did he weep? He wept because he, he saw the potential that Israel as a nation and the people of God had, had they received Jesus as their Messiah. God's original plan for Israel was that they were going to be the people that would bring the light to the rest of the world. They were going to be the people that God trusted his word to, and they were going to share the word with the rest of the world. Now they missed it. And I want to tell you, if you go there and you overlook that city of Jerusalem, your heart breaks as you see and you realize what Jesus wept over, knowing that if Israel had received Jesus as their Messiah, it would have changed all of human history. And today, rather than being this conglomeration of, of a mess and, and confusion and, and trouble and turmoil, Israel would have been a beacon and a lighthouse to the rest of the world. It would have brought such a light to the world that the world had, you know, would, would completely change the entire world today. Had the Jews received Jesus as their Messiah and for the last 2,000 years been the beacon of light and, and, and witness of Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel, amazing what our world would be like today. And Jesus wept. You know, one of the things about Israel is that today Israel is more prosperous than they've ever been in their nation's history. One of the prophecies that we watch very closely is out of Ezekiel's um, prophecies in, in Ezekiel chapter 37 and 38. Do you, I want to tell you guys something about Ezekiel. Do you know that there's a chapter 36 in Ezekiel? All we ever talk about is 37 and 38. I think people wonder, is there anything else in Ezekiel besides chapter 37 and 38? But we talk a lot about Ezekiel 37 and 38 because it's a, it's a prophecy that's yet future and it's unfolding before our very eyes. 
And the prophecy, Ezekiel tells us, concerns the events of, somebody, the last days. The events of the last days, or you could say the events of the end times. So Ezekiel's prophecy 37 and 38 will happen, will come to pass in the same time that Jesus said would be the last days or the end times or the great tribulation or the tribulation or the time of his return. And one of the things that was necessary for Ezekiel's prophecy in 37 and 38 to come true is that Israel, the Bible says, would, be, would have peace and safety and, and have security and be prosperous. And what, what do you see in Israel today? You see Israel as one of the most, the most, most in their history. Do you realize that Israel leads the world? And on, on the peace side, Israel has a relationship today and they've never had with Saudi Arabia. Israel has peace with Egypt and a friendship with Egypt. Israel is friends with Russia and with the United States. Russia, uh, Israel is, has, has peace on all its borders. Israel is leading the world in technological advances. They're number one in technology. They're number one in agriculture. They're number one in um, so many different medicine and, and med- medical discoveries. They, they, they are um, number one in water research, leading the world in everything. There was a, 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 a video of some people and they wanted to boycott Israel. They said, we want to, and that's the kind of the thing that goes around from time to time, boycott Israel. So this Jewish guy gets on there on a video, on his own video, and he says, hey, I understand the whole boycott Israel thing, and I wanted to help you do that. I think it's a good idea. So if you want to boycott Israel, this is what you got to do. You got to get rid of your cell phone because that's all Israeli technology. You, you don't take any more medicine because that was all discovered in Israel and made in Israel. You know, and he goes through all the list of everything in your life that's Israeli made, and, and really there was nothing left when he was done. But, but Israel is, um, when I was flying home this last time, I sat next to a kid on the plane, like 25 years old, and he was, from, he was Israeli, and he was on his way to central Kansas. And I said, now tell me, what in the world? You live in Jerusalem. What are you, what are you going to central Kansas for? And he said that he was going to, he works for a company in Israel, and he was on his way to central Kansas to work with farmers to bring them and to train them in agricultural technology that Israel's developing. Can you imagine? Lydia's dad is a farmer in central Kansas. They've been farming wheat on his, on his property, his dad and his dad's dad, for 150 years. And some 25-year-old kid's going to come from Israel and show up and tell you how to do it better? But that's what's happening. They, they, they just made this thing in Israel... And, it's, and it, it's, it goes around your tree, and it's a water collector. And guess where it gets the water from? Who? Gets water from the air. It takes moisture out of the air and waters the trees. Dude, how cool is that? Invented in Israel and being used in Israel and will revolutionize, you know, farming and, and the way that we, 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 we use water. So what does that have to do with anything? Nothing, but I love talking about Israel. God, God said, I will bless those that bless thee, and I will curse those that curse thee. And he's never rescinded his promise. And to be a friend of Israel is to be a friend of God. But the, the proof is just in the pudding. You know, you, you look at, in, in reality, just, just be, with just an honest assessment, what has Islam brought to the world? 
What kind of advances and technologies and, and improvements to mankind has Islam made? And, and what advances and, and improvements to life has God's people made or the Jewish people made? It's, it's endless and it continues. And um, just the, the point of all that was prophetically, we are in a place right now where Israel, in, in the position they are in, are fulfilling biblical prophecy. Do you realize that in 1934, 33, there, there was no Israel? There was no technological advances. There were no exports of medicine or technology or agriculture coming out of Israel in 1941. I mean, you guys, this is, this is in our lifetime. Well, not mine, of course, but um, some of yours. And the generation that saw it, 70 years, 71 years, I think Israel's been a nation. In 71 years, what God has done is he's, as he's fulfilled Ezekiel 35 and 36, and he regathered him as a nation. And now they've come to a place where there's peace and security all around. And we are living in a day the Bible describes as, as the second return of Jesus and, the, and a day when, when Jesus is coming back. Now, really off, off topic here, but I'm going to let you guys out on time. I promised myself that on women's retreat Sunday that those that came would definitely get out on time. I won't let you go over. But in 1933, 34, Hitler came to power. Hitler was an underdog in the political party that he represented, the Nazi party. And, and somehow against odds, his party and with some, some crooked do, doings came to power in, in Germany. One of the things that Hitler did in the early years was he was immediately, and his party was immediately anti-Semitic. There was a big Jewish population in Germany, and, and they, were, um, they were professionals, they were bankers, they were um, jewelers, they, they had good jobs and good incomes, and, and they had a ton of stuff that they had amassed in Germany. And, and what Hitler did was the church in, in Germany, and, and probably to the large part, a lot of it is that way today, is the church in Germany was state-ran. The state-run church in Germany was, was very good in theology. And they, and they had scholars and they had schools. And, um, but I don't know that they really had, in, in, for the most part, the Spirit of God that was moving through their churches. There's a famous um, theologian by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was born in, and lived during this time. He was actually executed by Hitler in 1945. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he, he wrote Christian books. He writes a book on disciples and he writes a book on being a disciple of Jesus Christ called The Cost of Discipleship. One of the greatest Christian books I've ever read. In, in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's um, biography, he details this period of time. And what happened was um, Hitler assigned his own guy um, to be the head of the state church in, Israel, in, in, in Germany. And this guy was just a, just a Hitler assignee. And he had a job to do. And his job was to turn the church away from Jesus and to follow Hitler, basically. And they called themselves, they went by the name, anybody want to take a wild guess? German Christians. And the German Christians, this new group, one of the first things they did was they introduced what's called in history the paragraph to their statement of faith in, in, the, in the German church. And in the paragraph, it demonized the Jew and, and basically began the process of demonizing Jews to the point where Hitler was eventually going to murder all of them. Now, things began to get bad and the German Christians eventually wanted to replace in their statement of faith the place of Jesus Christ in the life of their church with Hitler. 
And they wanted and expected the people of the German church, of the German Christians, to place Hitler above and preeminent over Jesus himself. They went by the name Christians. There was nothing Christian about it. You know, sometimes the terms that we use in church, they have to be defined. Because even though they went by the name German Christian, there was no Christianity involved. They were anti-Semitic and they hated the Jews and they were going to murder the Jews. You know, as, as you read through that history, that 10 years, you know, by the time Hitler came to power, to what he began to do, his attack on the church. You know, one of the first things that Hitler and the German Christians attacked and the, and the church in Germany as, as the Nazi Reich took over, Third Reich of the Nazis took over. First thing they attacked in the church, not, not, not on the political side, in the church, the word of God. And, and because you, you cannot read the Bible and, and come to the conclusion of, of the Jew that Hitler wanted to come to. And, and so they began immediately to attack the validity and the reliability of the word of God. And they begin to change some of the psalms and some of the hymns and they begin to rewrite them and they begin to, to produce teachings and, and, and ideas that you can't trust the Bible. Do you know what the first thing that Satan does when he attacks the church is? He attacks the word of God. That's why Joseph Smith said the Bible is only good in as much as it's translated correctly. Because you can't go on and fill a bunch of lies with, 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 with the word of God and, and it being reliable, the two will never jive. So you have to attack the word of God. And Hitler began and his, and his crew, they began to attack the Jew and they began to attack the word of God. And on those two fronts, and eventually the, the German church or the German Christians took over in Germany and the state of the gospel in Germany was, was atheist by the time it all ended. And, and so Jesus wept. <laughs> All right, that, that was a side note. Um, over the condition of Israel, verse 14 says, And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion. So, I, actually, I won't leave it undone. I did get way off, so I kind of need to keep moving now. But the, the point on the Jesus wept was just that Jesus experienced human emotion. Let me ask you guys a question. When Jesus died on the cross, they, they beat him beyond half dead. They beat him so bad and so brutally, they put a bag on his head and the soldiers punched him full board in the face. And then they took the bag off his head and they all put their hands out in front of him. And they said, prophesy, prophet, and tell us which one of these hands is the one that punched you. And they did this so many times that, that Jesus' face swole to where the Bible tells us that Jesus was, listen, unrecognizable as a man. You know those pretty pictures of you see Jesus on the cross and he's got one little teardrop and blood coming off his forehead? He looked like Rocky Dennis on steroids. He, he, he was so bruised and beaten and swollen that he was unrecognizable as a man. Do you know what the cat of nine tails would have done to his back? Hit, hit 39 times across his back with the cat of nine tails. And it would have come around and done the same damage to his ribs and his side. The crown of thorns that was pressed upon his head and then the swelling that would have gone into the crown of thorns. He was walking down the Via Dolorosa carrying the cross or part of the cross at least. And he had collapsed under the weight of the cross several times. 
And the Roman soldiers kicked him and they hit him with their spears and they said, get up, get up. And he would get up and he would, with everything he had, he would continue his walk down the Via Dolorosa. Finally, Jesus collapsed under the weight and the Roman soldiers decided it doesn't matter how many more times we hit him or kick him or yell at him. He absolutely has zero human strength left to take one more step. And they got the guy out of the crowd, Simon the Cyrenian, to carry the cross of Jesus and Jesus the rest of the way down the Via Dolorosa to the place of Calvary where Jesus was nailed to the cross. Do, do, you, do you hear that story and in your mind you think to yourself, well, Jesus was God, wasn't he? So he just used his God power. He didn't actually have to feel all that pain. He didn't actually have to really go through all that trouble because he was God, right? Can be a thought. I'm going to tell you it's the farthest thing from the truth. And it's a, a, a bit difficult to understand because I think maybe, maybe not you, but my mind can go that way. But the Bible is very clear that Jesus in, in, in the Bible, the word, the Greek word is kenosis, very powerful concept of God. The word kenosis means that Jesus was in heaven. And when he, when he took on flesh, he emptied himself of certain attributes. Kenosis means emptying and he emptied himself of God power. Did he have power to do miracles in the flesh? Yes, he did. But it came from God the Father. And, and, and really the Bible says that you and I, being filled with this Holy Spirit, would be able to do those same things. Because it was the power of God that was working through him. But he did empty himself, and he lived this life, and he experienced pain as a human. He emptied himself of those God powers. He didn't use any special powers. He wouldn't even take the medicine that they tried to give him on the cross to numb the pain. And, and, and he lived and took it all. So in, in Jesus's humanity, it's cool to see that he, he, he cried when people died. His friend Lazarus died and Jesus wept. The other thing that tells me about Jesus and really about grief is that it's okay to cry. But here, here's the thing, and I want to caution us. And I want to tell you, this can be offensive to some of you. And if it is, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I don't want to offend you. No, tough. No, neither one. Okay, I understand. I don't want to hurt you. I really don't. I really, really don't. But I do want to toughen you up a little bit. And I want to be um, a little tough love. The Bible gives a season for us to mourn. And what's healthy from God the Father to you, his children, is that he says, listen, you mourn and you mourn any way you need to mourn. He won't judge you on how you mourn. Some people die and, the, and the, the family members, they go in their bedroom, they take everything they own out of the house and 24 hours later, it's out of the house because they just can't see it. It just hurts. They just need to get rid of it. That's how they dealt with grief. Don't judge them. Other people keep the stuff in the house as a memorial for 25 years. Maybe you can judge them. No, I'm just kidding. You know, it's different, right? Don't judge them either. It's different. We, we process differently. And Jesus is okay with that. But this is what the Bible says. You know that crazy process of mourning in the Bible when they would hire um, uh, uh, professional wailers and mourners to come to funerals and ah, scream and yell and wail? You're like, what is that all about? It's so weird. <clears throat> it's part of God's prescription for grieving. He says, I give you and, and get it all out. Wail and mourn and cry out. And, and he says, 30 days. Actually, even I wish we had some of these rules. For 30 days, they didn't have to go to work. For 30 days, they, they didn't have to get out of bed if they didn't want to. 
But then, then on day 31, guess what he says? Get, get, get your pants on, get back to work, stop crying, get over it. Not, not that you have to forget, not that you have to, you know, grieve. But listen, let me tell you something that happens in reality in grieving. If your grieving process is unhealthy, it hurts you and God doesn't want to see you hurt. God wants to see you well. You're his child and he loves you. The other thing that happens is when grieving reaches a certain point where it's now, you, you, you won't allow yourself to heal. You send a message to every person that's alive in your life that the dead person is more, was more important to you than the live person. You know what happens when, 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 a, when a couple loses a kid? It's hard. And I, I, I can't say I understand because I've never walked it. I've walked with other people through the process many times as a pastor. And I believe it's one of the most difficult things that we'll face in this life. But, but, it, but if, 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 if I've watched, unfortunately, parents who, who grieve for so long and so hard that they tell their, their other children that are alive and still being raised that the, 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 and they send a message that the dead one is more important than the ones that are alive. And it's, it's, and, it, and it's hurt and, it, and, it, and it's hard, I understand. And God says it's okay to grieve and Jesus wept. But what we don't see is Jesus in five, ten chapters from now, like missing one day. And where's Jesus? Oh, he's thinking about Lazarus and he's thinking about John the Baptist and having a bad day. And he's off by himself mourning. Like you don't find that. You find him mourn. You find him get up. You find him go through a process and then go on with life. And here's the part that I think is hard for some people to swallow when I say, but it's true. Life is for the living. You know, you know when people die, the funeral... Oftentimes, you know, everybody's trying to figure out what the dead guy wanted. And, and they're telling me as the pastor, as we're trying to figure it out, like, he would really be honored by this. This person would, would really love this. We need to do this. And nobody in the family thinks it's a good idea. Nobody agrees, but the, he would really be honored by that. And we always do whatever they want to do. But listen, I, I tell them, and I, and I try to tell them, the funeral, it's not about the dead guy. He's dead. You guys are like, what is wrong with Chris today? Um, it, it's about you. What's going to make you feel better? What do you need to deal with your grief and your loss? When I die, I don't care what you guys do with me. And, you know, I, I don't care. Like I always tell Lydia, I just want you to barbecue some tri-tip. Don't spend any money on a service. Have a barbecue because that's what I would have liked to do and invite everybody over to eat and, and eat some tri-tip. Use all the money and buy some filet or something. Buy some steak and lobster and just enjoy the day. But, but honestly, are, you, are we honoring the dead person by doing what, you know, some crazy request when they die? I want everybody in my funeral to drink whiskey. Uh, no, we're not drinking whiskey. That's what killed you. And if you know Jesus, you're not drinking whiskey anymore. You know, or, or whatever these things, but just the point being life is for the living. And we'll do things because that's, that's what makes those that, that have lost somebody feel better, right? And that's what it's about. And, and if, we did it, if we did it right and we put our faith in, you know, and especially when you celebrate somebody who's a Christian and love Jesus, that's easy. They're in heaven. And we love Jesus. Amen? Amen. Did we cover two verses yet? No? <laughs> All right. So verse 14, and when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion for them, for them, and he healed their sick. Somebody say moved with compassion. 
Okay, that's what, it's, a, it's a characteristic of Jesus and should also be a characteristic of you. You need to be, you should be moved with compassion for people in your life. The number one command that God gave you, okay, somebody say me. Okay, not the person next to you. Don't elbow nobody. This is your command. Do you, do you, do you fancy yourself a Christ follower? If the answer is yes, then this command is for you. And it's the number one command that Jesus gave, the most important. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's your call as a Christian is to love. Love God and love people. So, so to be moved with compassion should be part of who we are as Christians. And so it's both motivating for us when we see Jesus do it. And it's also a call of God that we have on our lives. And it says, when it was evening, the disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place and the hour is already late. Send the multitude away that they may go into the village and buy themselves food. And Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Oh, So the disciples, what's interesting is Jesus was constantly telling the disciples to go and and feed people. Isn't that the last thing that he said to Peter post-resurrection on the beach after Jesus cooked some fish? And he came to Peter and he said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, Lord, you know that I like you. And he said, then feed my sheep. And, And the Lord said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, Lord, you know I'm fond of you. And he said, then feed my lambs. And he told Peter to feed, to feed. And so here he gives the, 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 the disciples an impossible, an, an impossible command. Feed 5,000 men, not counting women, women and children. Feed all these people. And what did the disciples do? The same thing that you and I do. They started to figure out the math. The other gospel tells us in this story that one of them who was like the math guy, he started calculating how much money it would take to feed all these people. And he's like, okay. And then he comes back and he's like, Lord. If we had two years worth of wage, it wouldn't be enough money to sufficiently feed all of these people. And then they're, they're, they're figuring it out and they're freaking out. Now, now, rather than freak out, what they should have done was realize they should have got excited. They should have been like, yes, cool, something, a miracle has to happen. Because Jesus just told us to feed all these people and we have no way of feeding them. And we're going to feed them. And so in order for that to happen, a miracle is going to have to happen. And I think that's the way that Jesus wanted them to process this command. Because when Jesus gives an impossible command, he shows up. You know, when we, when we first rented these two buildings, I've told you my story. It was kind of fun. It was the most recent one. We rented that side and we had to write a check from the church account for $2,400. And we only had $2,200 in the church account. And we wrote the first check for $2,400. And so we were negative $200 in the account. And then we negotiated to rent that one side. We had advertised we were starting church in a couple of weeks. We had nothing. We had no chairs. We had no monitors. We had, I, don't, I don't even think I had a pulpit. And, and the Lord spoke to me very clearly. And he said, I want you to rent this other side. This other side had just come available. The dance studio moved across the street. That was a beauty salon. They moved out first. We were in there starting to renovate it. We we negotiated it. We bought it or we rented it. And then he said, rent this side. I had negative $200 and I knew God spoke to me clearly. And I was excited. I was like, this is impossible. I have no money. I'm going to go and negotiate. This is so cool because God's going to have to show up and do something miraculous. And so I call the guy, I make the arrangements, I have him come out, I'm going to waste his time, he's got to come from Salt Lake, I'm going to waste everybody's time, I'm negotiating with no money, but I know God told me to do it, and so I do it, and we negotiate, and we come out, and that day, 
supernaturally, miraculously, God gave us a check for $40,000. Showed up that day. And so now we have all the money we need to start the church. And it came from outside, and it came from some miraculous way. And it was like, that thing happened. It really happened. And, And in that way, here in this story, when Jesus says to them, you go and feed them, they, they responded the way in you and I um, often respond when God tells us to do something impossible. We start to figure it out. God tells you to tithe or to give. And you start figuring out, you start doing the math. And you're like, no, the math doesn't add up. I can't give 10%. I can't give the, what I've purposed in my heart. It just doesn't add up. So I'll pay all the bills and whatever's left, then that's what I'll give. I want to encourage you. If that's your plan of attack, keep it. Okay, and I mean that with all my heart. Because by that point, when you just give out of what's left at the end of the month, God's not in it. He, God doesn't need the money. God, God going to do it with or without you. And, and, and you miss the entire principle of giving that God wants to bless in your life. You don't give of your first fruits. It doesn't require any faith for you to give. It doesn't require any sacrifice. And it's just, oh, I have a little bit left. I'll give part of that at the end of the month. Just don't do it. Because the whole point is, God, it's to your benefit, we read in 2 Corinthians, right? And it's for your advantage. And, and you miss that benefit and that advantage if you don't follow the biblical principle along the line. But there is a principle. Let's, let's just take a minute, if you would, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 17. I want to share with you a story. And, and listen, I, I promise you guys I wouldn't talk about money or giving for a little bit. Everybody was still kind of numb from all the talk about money the last couple months. But... Um, and, and I mean that. So, so this in context is not necessarily, I'm not making any plea for tithing or giving or anything like that, but um, more in context with the, the, the feeding the 5,000 and Jesus taking the, the five loaves and the two fish and him multiplying them to the crowd. I want to share with you guys on that front, but it has to do with God multiplying what we give. That's the bottom line. Look at uh, 1 Kings chapter 17, beginning in verse number 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, Arise, I love that word, it's such a, such a Bible word. Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and he said, Please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So she said, As the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin, and a little oil in a jar. And see, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and, are you guys with me? And what? And die. This is all we have left. And when it's gone, we're going to eat it and we're going to starve to death. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but only make me the cake from it first and bring it to me. What are you talking about, Willis? Did you not hear me, Elijah? I have enough bread and oil to make two pancakes, one for me and one for my son, and you're not included. And that's all that's left. And once me and my son eat these pancakes, we're going to begin the process of starving to death. And you want me to take everything, everything that's in my livelihood and give it to God first. Elijah says, yep. Like that is a sacrifice. That is a call. That, that's, a, that's a mantra, right, from, from God to really have to trust him. 
You know, I told you guys the story a couple weeks ago about a young man who, who was struggling with the concept of giving God first fruits because he owed people money. And he said, God will not be honored if I give of my first fruits and then I don't have enough money to pay the people that I owe money. How is God honored in that? And I said, I don't know. But I'll tell you, if you'll give God of the first fruits first, then somehow at the end of the month, the money's still there and, and people get paid like they're supposed to. And he did it. He made, he made an offering and God showed up in a miraculous way and he was super excited. And I don't know how the math works, but in this situation, this is real simple. She literally had enough oil and enough flour to make one last meal and then her and her son were going to die. And the man of God said, I want you to give it to me first. What would you have done? This is your son's livelihood. Now, you know what I like about this story? Look at verse number nine, back up a little bit. And God is speaking to Elijah and he says, arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow. What did God do? God had already prepared the widow's heart. And in your life, listen, don't let anybody talk you into or tell you how to give or where to give or what to do. Know this, that God is going to speak to your heart. Let God speak to your heart. Don't let somebody convince you. Don't do something. The principle is don't do something begrudgingly or something out of obligation. But I want to tell you, listen, this is my point in all this. Do you you know what one of the number one themes of the entire Bible is? Genesis to Revelation. God is trying to communicate something to you. And he started communicating that to you in Genesis. and And he doesn't stop until Revelation. Over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. God wants to tell you the theme is you can trust God. You can trust me. It's about trust. Trust God. You can trust God with every part of your life. You can trust God in in every area and he's going to take such great care of you. You can trust God. You can trust God. You can trust God. You can trust God. And so here this woman is posed with one of the greatest tests of can we trust God or not in the entire Bible because her very son's life is on the line, right? And so she comes and, and, and let's see what she does. She says, forget that, man. I'm not going to murder my own son. Elijah, you better kick rocks. And they ate the cake and they died. Two weeks later from starvation. Is that how the story goes? So it says in verse, um, in verse 14, For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bin of flour shall not be used up, nor the jar of oil run dry until the day of the Lord sends rain on the earth. So, verse 15, we have her decision. She went away and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and her household ate for many days, and the bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry according to the word of the Lord, which spoken by Elijah. So what happened was she stepped out in faith and she, she gave to Elijah the last bit of food, the, everything, the substance that she had. And then, and then she put the jar of oil and flour back in the pantry. And the next day she went to get it. And there was just enough to make enough cake for that day, enough bread for that day. And she mixed it up and she made bread and she put the, the, the containers back in the pantry. And the next day she went back and there was enough. And her and her son ate for many, many, many months after that on a little bit of 
flour and a little bit of oil, the Bible says, and God supernaturally made it so it didn't run out and multiplied it. The same miracle that Jesus does of feeding the 5,000. He puts the bread and the fish in the basket and he reaches in and he begins to distribute. And every time he reaches in, it does, it's not running out what's coming in. It's a bona fide miracle of God. Don't let anybody ever tell you different. Again, one of the areas of the Bible that get attacked more than anything are the miracles of Jesus or the miracles period in the Bible. This particular miracle, you'll hear all kinds of stupid stories about why this is not a bona fide miracle. One of, one of the theories is, this is how lame it gets. The little boy that brought his, his lunchable, he brought his lunch to Jesus and Andrew brings the lunch and Jesus takes these five loaves and these two fish and he begins to multiply it. Well, the little boy, everybody else had lunch too. They had it in their, in their sleeves where they would have kept their lunch. And the whole crowd had, had enough food to eat, but everybody was being stingy and greedy and didn't want to share it with anybody. And when they saw this little boy's generosity, it inspired the crowd to then let down their sleeves and share their food. And so when they saw the little boy bring the fish and loaves to Jesus, everybody let down, and that's where the food came from. You know, the story of, of, uh, that gets attacked, another miracle often gets attacked is Moses parting the Red Sea, or all of Moses' miracles. Now, if, if you're somebody that's on that camp, I, I, don't get, I don't get it. It's like, I would just rather be on the side of the camp that just says, oh, none of that's true. I don't believe it. Forget it. Bahumbug. But they're like, no, it's true. It just didn't happen that way. Like Moses didn't really part the Red Sea. A, a wall of water on the left and a wall of water on the right. What actually happened, it wasn't a real miracle. It was just a natural phenomenon. On the Red Sea, in that place where, the, where Israel crossed the, the Red Sea, there's sandbars that can naturally form. And when the wind blows a certain way, this, this sandbar and the, the water is only a foot deep. And, and the nation of Israel left Egypt and crossed the Red Sea in a foot of water as they crossed over the Red Sea. It was no actual miracle. And I'm like, sweet. Because then that's a really, really, really better miracle. How God drowned the entire Egyptian army in a foot of water. He like stepped on all their heads and held it under a foot of water. That's even a cooler story than the other one, but it's still a miracle nonetheless. But these miracles get attacked. So back to um, Matthew chapter 14. And so the, the, the principle, we're going to read it here um, in verse number 16 or 17. And I want you guys to follow with me, 14, 17. And it says, and they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. And verse 18, and Jesus said, so important, Bring them here to me. And that's the biblical principle for every one of us is we take what we have and we bring it to Jesus and Jesus multiplies it. Our, our um, statement for giving for life that we shared with you guys in the last couple of weeks, I want us to know this, is what we keep is all we have. But what we give, God can multiply. What we keep is all we have. Whatever you keep for yourself, that's all you got. But whatever you give, God can multiply. And in this occasion, the little boy just gave a little, but it was all that he had. And, and God multiplied it and Jesus began to multiply it. It says in verse 19, Then he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass, and they organized them in groups. And he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, he broke, he blessed and broke and gave loaves to the disciples. And the disciples gave to the, the multitude. 
And so they all ate and were filled, and they took up the 12 baskets full of fragments that remained. Why do you think there was 12 baskets left? 12 disciples, I guess each one of them got their own basket. I, I think we have to be careful sometimes reading into this stuff. People try to do this thing called like, um, biblical numerology, and there may be a little bit of validity in areas of it. I think there are some legitimate biblical numerology stuff, but it can go too far, and they try to make a story out of the five loaves and the two fish that he started with and the 12 baskets that were left up, and I, I never personally got into it. Um, so, but 12 baskets, definitely a 12 is, is a biblical number that we see that represents the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 disciples, the 24 elders in Revelation are made up of the two groups of 12. And so, um, and maybe just for each one of their faith, they each had it. And it's in verse 20, it says, so they all ate and were filled. That word filled is glutted, like they ate till they had nothing left. And in verse 22, it says, and immediately Jesus and his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he was sent the multitude away. And when he had sent the multitude away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And now when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. So Jesus sends the disciples to to the other side of the, of the lake. Now, one of the things is just like when Jesus told the disciples, you give them something to eat. When Jesus gave a command, even if it's impossible, it was doable because if Jesus commands it, he's going to make sure it happens. And Jesus would have provided a way. So when Jesus said, go to the other side, even though they were on a storm, they were going to get to the other side because Jesus told them to go to the other side. Same thing in your life. And, and then the other process is that um, they were exactly in the middle of God's will in the storm. Every time we face a storm in our lives, we think sometimes God is mad at us. God's not in it. There's a problem. But God was absolutely in it. And he was there. And Jesus even waited till the fourth watch of the night. What's the fourth watch of the night? Really quickly. Um, but I got I to gotta go through it. It's just kind of biblical study stuff. Um, the way the Jewish day breaks up from um, is their day starts at in the evening and goes to the following evening. We start our day kind of in the morning when you wake up till the evening when you go to bed, morning to evening. In a Jewish day, it's exactly the opposite. Okay, so even on even on Sabbath, what day of the week is Sabbath? <laughs> good, good. You guys know everybody always thinks, oh, the Sabbath is Sunday or we celebrate the Sabbath on Sunday. Unless you're Seventh-day Adventist, then they celebrate it on Saturday. And they're a little closer to getting it right. But technically, in Israel, Sabbath day or the day of Sabbath, it starts on Friday night at sundown and it goes till Saturday at sundown. So it's not just all day Friday, all day Saturday, because their day is from sundown to sundown. So when we were playing the Jewish school in sports, their school would observe Sabbath. So all the, the football games were scheduled on Friday night. But when you played um, the, the Jewish school, we had to play them on Saturday night. And the game couldn't start until the sun went down. Because Friday night at sundown, Sabbath began and they all had to be home. And then sa- su- Saturday, when, when the sun went down, Sabbath was over. And they would come out and play football and kick our butts. Now, actually, we kicked their butts in football. They beat us in basketball, though. Um, Tarbut Vitora, Jewish school in Irvine that we would play. Um, so so the, the 6 p.m. begins the night. 
And in the evening, the, the, the Bible records the time by watches. So from 6 to 9 is the first watch. From 9 to midnight, three-hour watches. From 9 to midnight, second watch. Midnight to 3 a.m. is third watch. 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. is fourth watch. So sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jesus lets them sweat for a while. He shows up, comes out walking on the water. Then starting at 6 a.m. as the sun rises, then they just count it by hours, right? The 12 hours. So Jesus um, was nailed to the cross at the third hour. What time would that be? 9 a.m. 7, 8, 9, third hour. Jesus, the earth quaked at the sixth hour. Sixth hour is what? Noon. Because, because that's when the, the quake. The ninth hour is when Jesus died. That's 3 o'clock. And then the 12th hour would be 6 p.m., um, is the way the Jewish uh, clock or biblical clock kind of works. So when you see that, you can follow it. And then it says, um, so he comes out to them. And then it says, and when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled saying, it's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, be of good cheer. It is I, do not be afraid. You know, I, I, it, make, it makes no sense until, until Jesus said it was I. They said, it's a ghost. And he said, oh, don't be afraid. But I guess you're still afraid until you know it's Jesus and until you know Jesus shows up in your life. And when Jesus shows up, there's nothing left to be afraid of. And, and so he said, do not be afraid. It is I. And then, and then Peter said, answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Do you realize there was actually two people in history that walked on water? Will Smith, in one of his movies, I think it's iRobot or something, there's a line in there, and he says, oh, I know, there's one guy who walked on water. And whenever I see that, I say, no, actually, there was two. You know, like, you're wrong. Peter walked on water, too. And, and you know, we give Peter a hard time. Peter was kind of a, a lug. He's kind of like a, a bull in a china closet. Jesus even calls Peter Satan at one point. But Peter walked on water. How many of you guys walked on water before? Nobody? Once? I, I seen on uh, Mythbusters, they had some guys trying to walk on water. And they had, you know, the old ancient like Chinese folklore was the ninjas could walk on water. So they, they reproduced it. And it was a swimming pool. It was only like eight feet across. And, and the guy had these like really big like funky shoes on. And he comes running across like full speed with these like water shoes on. And he tries to like take steps across the water and make move, display the water so he could run across the water. And he couldn't even take eight steps before he goes down. So not even the ninjas can really walk on water. But, um, but Peter steps out of the boat and Peter starts walking on water. What do you think that was like? You know, and then check out how the story goes. And then we're done, you guys. It says... Um, but when he saw that the wind and, the, and was boisterous and he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out and caught him and said to him, oh, you have little faith. Why do you doubt? We're going to close with verse 31 today, you guys. I want you to um, consider, though, how Jesus said, oh, you, lo- you of little faith. Why do you doubt? Now, the lesson of Peter walking on the water the, the simple lesson, listen, catch this. I know it's late, but I want you to catch this. You guys with me? You all right? Wake up, shake it off. Is that when Peter took his eyes off of Jesus, he began to sink. That's the simple lesson. In your life, when you take your eyes off of Jesus 
and you focus on your problems, you're going to begin to sink. What is the biblical prescription for you to um, get free from bondage in your life? It doesn't necessarily have to be illegal bondage. It could be anything in your life that's a bondage. You have to eat a box of Twinkies once a week. And, and, and you just can't stop, no matter how hard you try. That's a bondage in your life. You're in bondage to those Twinkies, and you want to cut it out. The, the biblical prescription is that you keep your eyes on Jesus, and you do the things of the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the deeds of the flesh. So in your life, in my life, we keep our eyes on Jesus and, and not on the problem. And if you focus just on the problem, and every day you woke up and said, I'm not having any Twinkies today. I'm not having any Twinkies today. I'm not having any Tw- Twinkies? Twinkies today? Oh, Twinkies sound really good. And we, if all we're thinking about is the Twinkies or the problem, then that's where we're going to go. But if we focus on Jesus, 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 then we forget about it. And Peter made that mistake. Now, Jesus said to him, as we close, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? How do you think Jesus sounded? Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Goodness! Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? They ate the tomato. Satan had deceived them. And they ate the tomato and sin and death entered the world. It was a tomato, by the way, not an apple. And, and, and sin and death entered the world and they hid and they, they, they sewed fig leaves and covered their private parts with these itchy, itchy bushes. And God shows up in the Bible in Genesis and he says, Adam, where art thou? How did God sound that day? Adam, where are you? What did you do? But you know, the Bible doesn't tell us, right, that how God says it. It just gives us the words and kind of our own impression of God will will read the intonation into the voice of God. I think God was heartbroken in the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, the Garden of Eden. I think God said, Adam, where are you? What have you done? I love you, Adam. I don't think he was like the sound of an arresting officer. And I think that the same is very true of Jesus here speaking to Peter. And I think what he said to Peter was, oh, man, you had it. Maybe like your son or daughter riding a bike for the first time and they're going well and then they slip and you're like, oh, you were doing so well. What happened? You you got this. You can do this. I think the Lord said to Peter, like, what went wrong, man? You had this. You got this. You can do it. And in your life, in my life, keep your eyes on Jesus and you can do it. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Father God, we come before you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for this day, God. And Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you, Jesus, for just being able to trust you. And Lord, I know the Bible and I'm so impressed in the Bible with this theme that in every area we can trust God. Lord, help us trust you. Help us learn the lesson from the feeding the 5,000, from Peter walking on water, from the disciples being caught in a storm, that regardless where we are this morning, that we can trust you. And Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful day.